Well, I know that long-winded preacher uh, didn't give you a lot of time for fellowship, and now the danger is, is that that long-winded preacher's back in the pulpit, so you all can't win, so uh, we are going to uh, continue with our summer series in the Psalms. Some of you are saying, hey, pastor, it's September, but technically it's still summer, okay, so uh, we're going to run this all the way through the end of the month. Uh, and you've already been told a little bit about what's coming up, we do want to uh, strongly encourage you, exhort you, plead with you, beg of you, uh, that uh, as we get to, to always come to the second hour, but particularly as we get closer to uh, October, we'll finish uh, the summer series in the Psalms through the end of this month. Uh, of course, we have our pot providence on the first Sunday of October, and then uh, the next Sunday, I guess October 8th, uh, we will begin our uh, members class. We'll, we'll call that during this, this time, and it's for everybody. We want everybody to, to experience the blessing of what's been put together. It will be a great reminder, refresher for those of us that uh, are members. Uh, it gives you the confidence of knowing what's going to be taking place uh, in the future because then this members class becomes the new members class that we'll put on uh, as we have uh, need and opportunity throughout the year. Uh, and what we really want to encourage from you is two things. One, that you'll plan to be here because it's important for you to be here. And two, you kind of take a look around and notice uh, some of the people that might leave after second hour. Uh, you need to you know, carefully persuade them, bribe them, Offer to take them out to lunch afterwards, whatever you need to do to get them to be part of this second hour because we want everyone to benefit from it. And, uh, you know, some of the folks that uh, are uh, maybe leaving after first service, uh, th they may be those that need to know about what it means to be a member of the church and, and participate in that. So, uh, again, pray for that time. We're very much looking forward to, uh, to having that uh, whole curriculum put together it'll be a blessing for the entirety of the congregation and then from going forward it will be an opportunity for people to uh, be exposed to who we are as a as a church uh, what we believe as a church and part of that also is getting people plugged into the church as we get to learn about their spiritual gifts and and uh, the things that the lord might have laid on their heart so again please be praying for all of that with that, we're going to uh, look today at Psalm 124. You might have noticed as we began the summer series in the Psalms, uh, we were kind of going in somewhat of an, an order, at least increasing from a lower number of Psalm to a higher number of Psalm. Well, as the summer goes and people get sick and things get moved around, Psalms get moved around uh, too. So I was to preach Psalm 124. How many of you remember the no electricity day when it was about uh, 90 in here and 90% humidity. I think clouds had formed up in the higher place and it was raining in here. And uh, anyway, we didn't have the second hour, so I didn't uh, teach uh, Psalm 124. And then it came up that I needed to teach. We needed somebody to teach today. And so I just got to bring this back out. Uh, next week, uh, I know that uh, Brother Phil will be teaching Psalm 110. I, I you looked blank for a moment, so I was a little concerned. Okay. <laughs> so we have Psalm 110, and that was a psalm he didn't get to teach earlier in the uh, season as he was r wrestling with his foot. Uh, I don't know why he was wrestling with his foot, but he did. And then uh, the last psalm of the year uh, for this year will be on the last Sunday, and uh, Chris is teaching that, and that's uh, Psalm one four. 146, so Psalm 146. So you've got 124, 110, and 146. If you can keep that straight, read ahead, okay? Take care of one, uh, Psalm 124 today. So uh, so with that, let's uh, begin our time. We've entitled this Psalm, What a Difference the Lord Makes. Uh, I invite you to stand. Let me read for you our text this morning, uh, and then I'll uh, open with a brief prayer, and we will uh, in begin our time of looking at this particular psalm. Psalm 124, a song of ascents. 
of David. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. The raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So ends the reading of God's word. Father God, bless our time together. As we consider these truths, may it be to your glory and to our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I hope that you can agree with this statement. What a difference the Lord makes in the life of a believer. I would hope that there would be testimonies that we could just pop up and say, let me tell you the difference the Lord has made in my life. And that wouldn't be just with regard to our salvation. That's where we would all start. But I think each of us have those, those moments in our lives, sometimes maybe great and happy moments, sometimes moments of difficulty and tragedy. But we know the Lord made a difference in our lives. When the Lord is on our side, we are assured victory. It does not matter how great the foe or deep the trouble. But the opposite would also be true. That without the Lord, regardless of how much effort you have, how much expertise, how much experience, all will ultimately fail. I love the way that the Apostle Paul put it. He put it so simply, didn't he? In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, he said, if God is for us. You fill in the blank. Who can be against us? When God is on our side, it does not matter who else is or is not with us. It has been said, I believe rightly, that one plus God always results in a majority. One plus God always results in a majority. All the world may oppose the weakest of saints, but if the Lord before him, no one will stand against him. He will prove utterly victorious. And again, the opposite is true. You can take the strongest of men. He can have the entire world standing behind him. But he will surely fail if God is not with him. Beloved, this is the message of Psalm 124. It reminds us of the difference the Lord makes in the life of of the believer. You might notice in the superscript there that Psalm 124 is described as a song of ascents. That this is one of 15 psalms beginning in Psalm 120 and going through 134 that Israel would use as they traveled up to Jerusalem to worship. The Lord as you re may re uh, may remember required that all of the men would come to Jerusalem to worship on at least 3 of the the times a year, these three prescribed feasts of Passover, of Pentecost, and the Feast of Harvest. What were the songs of ascents for? The songs of ascents were meant to help prepare the hearts and minds of the people to do one thing, to worship the Lord correctly, to worship the Lord God. And my hope is that as we go through Psalm 124, it would be that which helps prepare us for a life of proper worship. Another thing we note in the superscription of the psalm is that it is written by none other than David. David wrote four of the 15 songs of ascents. He wrote 122, this one 124, he wrote 131 and 133. And one of the things students of psalms like to do whenever you see that it's the psalm of David, what do you want to do? You want to try to find out when did he write it? What was going on in his life that prompted him to write those particular words of that psalm? Sometimes it's very easy to do. Sometimes he kind of comes out and tells us. And then there are other times like this psalm before us that's difficult. 
And the reason why it's difficult, it's, it's too broad of a psalm. And David's not giving us any real specificity uh, from his life. So ultimately, this psalm speaks of how God is one is the one who has delivered the Israelites from defeat, something the Lord had done many times in Israel's life and had done many times in the life of David as well. Israel experienced the divine difference that only the Lord can bring. And what was true then at the time of the writing of this psalm, so around 1,000 B.C., that was a little while ago, is still true today. Beloved, the very existence of the nation of Israel is a testimony of the difference the Lord makes in the life of his people. Now, whether we're speaking of David or Israel or believers in Jesus Christ, this truth remains. If we were to put it in the words of Solomon from Proverbs 21, verse 31, we read this, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to who? To the Lord. I've divided our psalm into two main points, very easy. The first point is life without the Lord. And the second point is, you want to guess what it will be? Life with the Lord, okay? So we're going to look at life without the Lord on your side, and then we'll follow up with life uh, with the Lord on your side. So our first point, life without the Lord on your side. David makes a statement for the people of God to ponder in verses 1 and 2. It's a statement. He says, had it not been the Lord who was on our side, pause, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us. We can put this into the form of a question, and I think it would help us kind of grasp what David's striving after. So the question would be posed this way. What if God were not for us? What if God were not on our side? This is what David is calling the nation of Israel in this moment to consider. In other words, when assailed by their enemies, what would it have been like if Israel had not had the Lord on their side? What would have happened? I find that question to be both helpful and terrifying. It's a very interesting question to ponder if you're thinking in the terms, if you know anything about Israel's history, just think of how things would have turned out if the Lord had not been on their side. It would be terrifying to think of that way, but then you can start thinking about your own life. What would it be like if the Lord were not on your side? It causes us to think about things in ways that we might not have otherwise pondered. While this question may be hard to answer, others like it are easy. I mean, what would it be like if the Lord were not on our side? And we, what, what would that be like? Let me, let me ask you uh, some maybe simpler questions. What if there was no such thing as gravity? What if there was no such thing as gravity? What if gravity just all of a sudden ceased? You think, oh, well, that'd be kind of fun. We're just going to start floating around, right? Uh, well, without gravity, every planet would explode due to the pressure that's already in their cores. Without gravity, our solar system and every galaxy of the universe would begin to break apart. So I don't want to think about that. Let's think smaller. What if there's no moon? Well, it would be dark at night, Pastor. That's easy. Well, besides being at dark at night, there'd be no tides, and that would change everything of the dynamics of this earth. We could ask this question in so many ways. I could ask, what if I'd never met my wife? What would my life be like? be a bummer going up for a bike ride on my own. But the question for us is very pointed. What if the Lord was not on our side? What if the Lord was not the one who was taking care of us? And the answer should be easy for the people of God. We'd be a mess. David answers the question in verses 3 through 5. Notice what he says. 
if the Lord had not been on our side. Then they, our enemies, would have swallowed us alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have engulfed us, the stream would have swept over our soul, then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Sorry if I'm trying to be punny, but the people of God would be sunk without the Lord. David pictures Israel without the Lord as being in deep and dangerous waters. In verse 4, David describes flood waters. He says, the waters would have engulfed us. Without the Lord, the waters of their troubles would have completely surrounded them, overtaken them, and brought them down. He goes on to say in verse 4, the stream would have swept over our soul. In other words, it's not just enough to be swallowed. You're, you're being swept away by whatever undertow is, being, uh, is out there. I uh, uh, was a beach bum as a teenager. I lived out in San Diego, and I loved to go body surfing. And, of course, I go out there, and you, you had to understand certain things about the tides because there's what called rip tides that would take you uh, certain directions you didn't want to go off and out, out deep into the ocean or, uh, or you have undertoes where you're, you're getting sucked down underneath the, the water. Those are terrifying. Uh, riptides, okay, you just kind of swim sideways until you get out of it. But an undertow, you're getting swept under the water. That stream is pulling you along. And those are terrifying circumstances to find yourself in. These are circumstances that David said threatened their very existence. It threatened their souls. In verse 5, David continues pouring out this picture. He says, the raging waters would have swept over our souls. Here David intensifies the picture. He's using this phraseology and getting deeper and deeper with it. The waters are raging. They are so violent. They are, in the Hebrew text, it literally should read this way. They are proud waters. What do we mean by proud waters? These are waters that take delight in the victory of consuming whatever it is that they uh, have, have set their eyes on, as it were. Again, I'm sorry, I'm going to my San Diego days when I wasn't a teenager, when I was a little younger and a punk, uh, I would build sandcastles. You know, you build your sandcastle and you get far enough from the water so that your, your, your sandcastle construction, it's, it's safe and it's sound. But... Uh, I'd be out there all day, and what happens during the day? The tide changes, and all of a sudden, the waters start coming in, and those proud waters, they are proud. They take pleasure in just eroding everything that's been built until finally some monstrous, totally one-foot wave, monster wave for a sandcastle, it's over with. It takes it out. The proud waters gaining victory over whatever it is they're consuming. And David describes these waters as proud. These are the, 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 the enemies of Israel that are taking delight in bringing Israel down. And the point that David is making is if the Lord had not been for Israel, Israel would be in their demise. Biz Israel would be destroyed. Israel would be drowned in the waters. Israel would be no more. Scripture provides us an event in which this is wondrously illustrated in the Exodus. Recall that as Israel was in Egypt, they became slaves and, of course, were forced to do hard labor for the Egyptians. Their bondage was so incredibly severe and oppressive. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we read, The sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Did you just get how many times Moses uses the idea of bondage, crying, crying, and bondage? So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. 
Without God, their lives had become miserable and oppressive. And now God's going to take notice. God was on their side, and much of the book of Exodus is a chronicle of that very thing. You could entitle an entire series on the book of Exodus as the Lord on Israel's side, right? And you could see the multiple ways in which that had come about. The Lord brought upon the Egyptians, of course, uh, as we see this uh, story take place, ten very specific plagues, each of them, by the way, a very unique demonstration of God's power over the so-called gods of the Egyptians and all the powers and magic that they were trying to perform. The Lord always stopped the plagues at the time when Moses said they would stop, And by this, according to Exodus chapter 10, verse 12, the Lord made a mockery of the Egyptians. I just love the statement. So uh, the Egyptians are trying to take out Israel, and in the process, the Lord makes a mockery of God's enemies. You cannot read Exodus without realizing that it was the Lord who delivered Israel from slavery. He did it uh, the way that he did it so that it would be clear that The Lord had secured the victory. Nobody, after they got to the other side of the Red Sea, thought, wow, we were so special. We we had this planned out. They fell for our trap. We gained the victory. Not even close. The event, I believe, Psalm 124 appears to be alluding to, of course, is when Israel came up to the Red Sea. You want to look with me at Exodus chapter 14? You can turn there. I'll have some of these verses available for you on the screen in just a moment. But recall that after the death of Pharaoh's firstborn, he told Israel, okay, it's time. You're going to leave. Yet according to Exodus 14, 8, after he tells them you're going to leave, we read this. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel. So the Lord had led Israel to the western side of the Red Sea Uh, In Exodus Exodus 14.2, then Pharaoh uh, comes with his army. You have the Red Sea behind you. You're not a bunch of trained warriors. There are no Navy SEALs. There's no air support at all, at least from a human perspective. Your backs are up against the water, and the entire Egyptian army is coming towards you. What do you do? You panic? Yeah, you panic. Did Israel panic? I think in large part they did. But it was interesting that when Pharaoh came with his army and Israel's trapped, the army in front of them, the Red Sea behind them, but the Lord is on their side. And we begin in Exodus chapter 14, verses 19 through 31. And I know it's a little longer section, but hear what happens from God's word itself. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 19. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 23. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit. And all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. Verse 27. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power with which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. That's awesome stuff. Clearly, whose side was the Lord on? Was there any question? He was on Israel's side. But the whole start of this psalm is, what if he hadn't been on their side? What would have happened if the Lord had not been there? We cannot know for certain, but I do know it probably would not have been good. At best, the Egyptians would have what? They would have captured and enslaved them again. At worst, the Egyptians might have killed them or driven them, drowned them into the Red Sea. Well, that latter part sounds a lot like verses 3 through 5. Then, if the Lord had not been on our side, as we're pressed up against the Red Sea, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have engulfed us. The streams would have swept over our soul. The proud waters would have swept over our souls. While David may have well had this event in view as he's pinning these words, I would I'd be very careful to say that he probably had other events in his own life in which these words would be true for him as well. How many times had the Lord delivered David how many times had the Lord helped David bring a victory that it would be said, victory belongs to the Lord? Well, we see this, don't we, in the life of David as well. And not just the testimony of Israel itself, but David, a young David, who defeats who? The giant of Gath by the name of Goliath. Did David do that on his own? Was David just this squirrely, scrawny guy that just happened to get off a lucky shot that brought down this big giant? Well, that's not the testimony of David. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 37, listen to David's testimony. He said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He, before he even goes and faces down Goliath, says, I know that it's not going to be about me. I believe in the living God. I trust in him. Him and he will bring the victory. This is how it went down, where David accredited the victory to the Lord. Have you thought about the account? How David, <laughs> David goes out and how many stones does he pick up? You know, five stones. He chooses them, he picks them up, and he goes out, and, he, and he, he gets himself ready. He has five stones. How many did he need? He takes the very first stone, and he puts that in that sling, and he swings it, and with the very first shot, he hits this giant Goliath. Now, yeah, he was a big target, but he hits him square in the head. He hits him so hard, it knocks Goliath down. David runs over on the top of this, I don't know, knocked out or stunned Goliath. And he draws Goliath's sword. And he kills him. It would seem that God's hand was on the rock, on the sling. It was on David. And it was on Goliath. 
This was the first of many divinely guided victories in 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 7, and, and some other verses we'll include in a moment. Listen to what we find David giving as a testimony at the end of his life. We read, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my refuge and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction overwhelm me, the cords of Sheol surround me, the snares of death confronted me. Verse 17, in my distress I called upon the Lord, yes, I cried, oh, sorry, verse 7, I cried to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came into his ears. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for those who were too strong for me. This is David's testimony, that victories that he experienced in his life, every victory he ascribes to whom? To the Lord. And can I just give a very practical suggestion that whatever victories, I don't care how small victories they may be or how grand, will you take time to give the Lord the credit for it? Because if you belong to him, the Lord's on your side. It's not happening because you're so great, you're so wonderful, you're so special in yourself. It's because the Lord is working at these things out on your behalf. It's interesting that in the Second Samuel uh, text that I just read that David would use water language. Did you catch that in verse 5? He says, for the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. Again in verse 17, he sent from on high, he took me, and he drew me out of many waters, he says. It would seem that David had more in mind than simply being saved from drowning. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, after taking the city of Jerusalem, but now having to defend it against the Philistines, which he did, listen to how David describes the event in verse 20. 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 20, he says, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. So he's turning the water motif from this is what's happening to me, I'm drowning, and he turns it and he says, guess what my God's going to do? If the Lord's on my side, he's going to do that to my enemies. Coming back then to the question, if the Lord had not been on our side, David's response is that Israel would have been devastatedly, devastatingly defeated. That's life without the Lord on our you may think that you're building some kind of empire. You may think that you're doing well. You may have all of your towers built, but guess what? They will come falling down. Life without the Lord on your side. But praise God. Praise God that he moves David from not simply pondering the worst case scenario. Some of us are like that, right? We're good at figuring out well, this would be terrible, and this is going to be terrible, but we don't ponder the other side of the equation. What are things like when the Lord is on your side? And that's our second point, life with the Lord on your side. Look at verses 6 through 8 again. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken, and we have escaped our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Ultimately, this is a praise to the Lord, right? This is the singing of joy. This is saying God's on the side of his people. This is what we celebrate when we come together Sunday after Sunday. Are we not celebrating that the Lord is on our side, that the Lord has done great and mighty things for us? 
Again, we read in Romans 8, 31 through 32, very similar words for believers in Christ. I've read this first part. But if God is for us, who can be against us? And now he goes on to, to beg the question further. God, who did not spare his own son. What, and what title did he give his son, by the way? Beloved, thank you. Just making sure we're connecting the two services. Okay. Uh, who did not spare his own beloved son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? What do you lack in Christ? If Christ be on your side, you have all things. If Christ be on your side, you have everything necessary for life and godliness. This is our hope in Jesus Christ. We proclaim God is for us, that he gave his son to save us. And if God has given us Christ, how will he not also then give us all things? Because all things are in Christ. Truly, victory belongs to the Lord. Israel was to know this. Believers are to know this today. We read of numerous times when Israel was poised to be torn asunder, verse 6. There were numerous times when Israel was tra trapped like a bird, verse 7. Numerous times when it was the Lord who helped or actually caused Israel to gain the victory, verse 8. In verses 6 and 7, we see the description and dread of a people who are about to be uh, destroyed, right? In verse 6, the picture is of a lion ready to pounce and to shred his prey with their teeth. I, I saw a video the other day, and I, I, I can't do it justice. I tried to understand the, the horror of this. It was a man up in, I guess, uh, obviously, where polar bears live, okay? Because there's polar bears. And he was on his own in front of this little tent. And two polar bears began to come after him. And all he had were like some ski sticks and some long thing. And, and this one polar bear is coming after him. And in the video, you see the polar bear lunging at him. Probably got about as close as I am to where Brett's at. And all that guy did, he had this big old something, and he just kind of hurls it out there. It doesn't come anywhere near the bear, but the bear stopped. And I, all I could imagine is, I, I mean, I was thinking, if that were me, and I saw a polar bear running full blast at me, I, I would think, it doesn't matter what I'm going to throw at this thing, I'm dead. But that bear stopped for a moment. Guy picked up a ski or something and hurled it. And for whatever reason, those two polar bears walked off. But to think, in that moment, I thought, there was a moment when that guy thought, I'm going to be shred. There's no way I'm going to survive the next three seconds of this life. And that's what David's describing. You know that this lion is about to shred you to pieces. And then all of a sudden, it stops. Verse 7, we find the trapper. He set a trap. You're in the trap. Which means what? You're done. The hunter's going to come. And what's the hunter going to do? He's going to put you out of, the, of your misery. Right? But the Lord intervenes. The Lord breaks the snare. The Lord sets his people free. There are so many parallels in Israel's history that we could recount. Let me just point out one to illustrate this. Remember Israel's battle against Amalek in Exodus chapter 17? At one point, the battle was going very poorly. Israel was being beaten back. It looked like this was a lost cause. Then all of a sudden, Moses holds up his arms. And what happens? Israel begins to prevail. Now, this wasn't some kind of wizardry on Moses' part. It was the Lord demonstrating that he would gain the victory through his servant Moses. If you have time to go and read again today, Joshua chapter 2. What's in Joshua chapter 2? 
Battle of Jericho. I mean, come on, people. I, this It's a great story. It's a great account. But do you think for a moment Israel thought because they surrounded that and walked around the building or walked around the, the walls seven times that that's what caused the walls to tumble? They knew better. Read Joshua chapter 10 when Israel defeated their, their enemies. How? Well, they needed to get it all done, but they were running out of sunlight. So what does God do? Well, we'll just pause the sun here for a moment. We could go on and on, but we see constantly in the scriptures God gaining the victory for Israel. This psalm written around 1000 BC would offer the same truth to Elijah when he is up on Mount Carmel, when he stood against 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah in 1 Kings 18. He was trapped Yet the Lord brought the victory by bringing down fire on that altar that morning. And while we might like to see such dramatic displays of the Lord being on our side, it's not always done in ways that we see so readily. Some people wonder, and just as an aside on this, you just, just know that in the scripture, you know, there's, there's only seasons where you see these great and marvelous miracles. You have uh, Elijah and Elisha. That's a, a time. Uh, you have Moses and all the miracles there. You have uh, Elijah and Elisha and all the miracles there. And then you don't see another time until Jesus comes on the scene. And we like to think sometimes that the entire Old Testament is just one miracle after another. No, there were seasons of miracles uh, that took place. God was not always so dramatic in the way in which he displayed that they that he was on on his people's side. Um, God rarely displays his being on his people's side so overtly, but that doesn't mean he's not. We see it through providence. It's interesting along those lines in 2 Kings chapter 6, recall that the king of uh, Aram came against Israel with an army of forces and chariots encircling the city of Samaria, uh, and Elijah's servant was filled with fear. Elisha's, I don't know if I said Elijah or Elisha, Elisha's servant was filled with fear, and Elisha says to him in 2 Kings 15 this, or Elisha's servant says to Elisha, Alas, master, what shall we do? I mean, we're done. Uh, we're not getting out of this at all. But listen to what Elisha uh, responds in the next verses, verses 16 through 18. So he answers him and says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So right now the servant can't see any of these things, all right? It's like, no, well, we're done. Verse 17, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. <laughs> Can you imagine you're listening to this prayer, see what? What am I going to see? And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, and I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Again, we don't know the way that the Lord is going to do things. We know there's a time coming when he's going to do things in dramatic ways. That does not mean he's not doing dramatic things in our lives today. The ultimate thing I want to leave you with today is to remember the difference the Lord has made, is making, and will continue to make in your life. So let me close by turning this upon ourselves, because what is true for Israel, that it was the Lord who made the difference, is true for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Do you worship the Lord by saying, praise the Lord, he is for us? Praise the Lord, he is for me. Recall what happened in the early church is one day Peter and John are boldly proclaiming and preaching Christ to all the people in Jerusalem. All they're just preaching. No, no, no. Preaching Christ, and we learn in Acts chapter 2 that thousands were repenting of their sins and coming to Christ. We read the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Oh, I prayed that we could have days like that. Can you imagine just preaching outside and having thousands come over the days of Whitfield and Wesley and their open-air preaching? At one point, Peter and John were arrested, and they stood before an unbelieving Jewish council who was trying to figure out what do we do with these two preachers who won't stop preaching in the name of Jesus. The council had already told them back in Acts 4.18 to speak no longer uh, in the name of Christ. Well, how did Peter and John respond? In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, they said, we cannot stop speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. Later, Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, stood up and he spoke better than he knew. He did not follow the Lord Jesus, but in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 35, listen to what he says. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up, uh, joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some after some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in, this, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But, here's what he got right, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else may even be found fighting against God an unbeliever that said that. According to Acts 5.40, the council took Gamaliel's advice and they only flogged Peter and John, ordering them once again to do what? Not speak in the name of Jesus. But what happened? You continue to read through the book of Acts. What did they keep doing? Preaching about Christ. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God kept spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great number of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. In Acts chapter 12, verse 24, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Oh, I pray that we could have days like that. In Acts chapter 19, verse 20, we read the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Lord, bring those days before us in that way. But how is it that God's word had such an impact on the society of that day? Because God was with the church. What we read about, the word of God going forth, the people coming to know the Lord, God was with the church. How do we know if God is with the church? Because we see God bringing people, bringing people to faith, bringing people to greater commitment to the Lord. This is the great reality that we have in Psalm 124. God is for us. The Lord is on our side. If he was not on our side, the church would have been destroyed a long time ago. Look with me at, at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We love these words. Try to put them in a different light for us here. And uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the, of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Stop there. Bummer. But, verse 4, can I interject a little bit? But the Lord is on our side. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The Lord is on the side of those who believe. And so do you believe? Because if you believe, you not only believe, for your salvation, you believe that God is on your side. God is for us. Let's look at one more before we wrap this up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19, uh, verses 20, I'll get this, verses 12 through 19. I must be thinking about biking now, I don't know. 
If Christ is preached, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Y'all got that? There's no resurrection, not even Christ is raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then we all, and then, uh, then all those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's if the Lord's not on our side. If the Lord's not on our side, then Christ never would have been raised from the dead. If the Lord were not on our side, there'd be no forgiveness of sin. There would have, there would have been no cross. If Christ had never been raised from the dead, then we are of all men to be most pitied. But here is the good news found in the next verse, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. Christ is risen. Yeah, some of you wanted to do it. You should all join it. Christ is risen. Risen indeed. And this is the hope that we have as believers in Christ. As Christ was raised from the dead, so too are we raised from the dead because Christ is on our side. The point of this and Psalm 124, as we close, is the difference the Lord makes in the life of his people. And we can say it a multitude of ways. We ought to say it a multitude of ways. Truly, here's a way to say it. Christ is Emmanuel. Which translated means what? God is with us. God is on our side. He is worthy of our praise. And as Psalm 124 uh, ends, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's the creator of all things. He is our help. And if this be so, who can harm us? If this be so, what is against us? So we praise the Lord for the difference the Lord has made. Let us close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for these words, the encouragement they bring to us, reminding us that if you had not been on our side, the travesty our lives would be. But we thank you that you are on the side of those who belong to you, those who have called upon your name, those whom you have divinely intervened in and given us the knowledge of our need of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have been our help. We thank you that you are our provider. We thank you for your providence and your, for your sovereignty. And I pray, Father God, that each of us would delight in the difference that you have made in our lives, that that would stimulate us on to greater acts of love and devotion and good deed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Well, thank you for uh, joining us in the second hour, and at this time we are dismissed. Reminder that...